honoring honorable leaders. Hebrews 13. So once you have it, once you stand, if you're able, and we're going to read from 17 to 25. Here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, Hebrews 13, 17, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, 18, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, all God's people said, amen. Amen. But we're not done, and you can tell this guy's a preacher, because after the amen, he just keeps going. He says, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. You can have a seat. Heavenly Father, as we uh, have spent a good amount of time together in this majestic book of Hebrews, we have seen so many beautiful things, so, so much good exhortation, and really the, the theme of the book has been the supremacy of Jesus Christ to everything, to the law, to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to the high priests. And as we've moved through the book, we've been reminded that we have a throne of grace, an altar of grace, a gospel of grace. We don't need to go back to the old shadows. We can now rest in the new covenant. But that doesn't mean we don't do anything. And in Hebrews 12, we saw that we have a race to run and we have things to do. In chapter 13, sacrifices that we still are to give, but they're sacrifices of praise and they're doing good and sharing with others. With these sacrifices, you are pleased, O Lord, and we want to please our King So in this final study, Lord, in a final section with some great exhortation and a beautiful benediction, I pray that you would illumine our eyes so that we might become more like our King. It's in his name we pray, in the name of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Now, the writer is obviously not with this group of people, and you can see that from this final section. And he opens this last section together with the word obey. The word obey is never a word that uh, gets a lot of good billing. Whenever you hear that word, you're like, obey? Who am I going to obey? Why why do I have to obey, right? But he says, obey your leaders, and that softens the blow because he's not there at the moment. So he's saying, he's not saying obey me. He's saying obey your leaders, the ones that are with you right now. In verse 7, if you take a peek back just for a moment, there's three verses in chapter 13 that deal with leaders. And it says, remember in verse 7, those who led you, here's how we discern what a good leader is, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. 
So remember those who led you. It would seem that there's a new group of leaders in verse 17 who are the current leaders. And this particular author, and remember there's a debate on who the author of Hebrews is. Some, be, some believe it's Paul. Some believe it's Apollos. Whoever it may be, this leader obviously is some sort of pastor. And he's saying, obey your current leadership. So it's always nice, it softens the blow a little bit because honestly, as a leader of a church or one of the leaders of a church, I would always wanna be very careful that I don't look like I'm doing something self-serving and you all know I didn't turn to this text. I've taught you verse by verse through the book of Hebrews with some other teachers. But when a verse like this comes before us, I don't want it to seem self-serving to you and I think one thing that does soften the blow is for you to know that this leader is telling them to obey their leaders. He's not saying obey me, although that could be appropriate. But I'll just say this. If someone has to say obey me, I'm a little concerned. If someone has to, you know, kind of uh, ask for the respect of people, we need to be taught, but we got to be careful. Let someone else praise you, you know. Uh, you, don't, you don't need to throw your weight around as a leader and I get concerned sometimes when there's this constant uh, refrain on what your responsibility is to the leader and not what the leader's responsibility is to you. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna follow the biblical ethic, Jesus knelt down and washed the disciples' feet and said, this is the kind of leader I am. I'm a servant leader. And that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have awesome authority, etc. but you get the point. In the church, we lead by example. We are servant leaders, and we lead under the chief shepherd. We are under shepherds at best. So we want to be careful with that. But nevertheless, it does sit before us, obey your leaders. Notice it's plural. It's not just one leader. In the early church, uh, elders, uh, an elder-led church was the New Testament model, and while there are some, there's some latitude in terms of there's not a ton on what we would call ecclesiology in the Bible or that is church government or leadership, there's not a ton of stuff there. But what is there is that a group of men are called to be elders in a church. They're called to lead. Uh, Paul urged, I think it was uh, Titus, to uh, appoint elders in every city and I will just say this to you, and this may not be popular, but I don't really care. Um, the biblical model for leadership is male elders in a church, not female elders in a church. And I will tell you that a good amount of the evangelical world is ordaining women uh, into the ministry, etc. Now, let me just qualify this by saying Women were and always have been the backbone of the church. From the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the women were there and the disciples were hiding. But in the biblical um, outline that God has given, male headship is the way God has designed things. Not because men are superior to women, but because men have a different role than women. And it is an undeniable truth. And what concerns me is that many in our culture have blown with the wind because, I believe, of the pressure of the culture. And here's what you're going to hear. They're going to say that they've made the decision not because of cultural winds. They're going to say they made the decision because they've been convinced that the Bible leads them to do so. And I would just say to you that most pastors I interact with when this question comes up, 
I don't hear really good arguments. I kind of feel like there's a little song and dance going on. And we're not going to apologize for the word of God. Now let me just say this. When you see obey and submit, I know those are a little bit of scary words, but they're scary words when the leader is scary. <laughs> we also know if you look at marriage, on the flip side of obey and submit is love your wife the way Christ loves the church. And if I'm gonna love my wife the way Christ loves the church, I think my wife will trust me to lead her well. If I'm following Christ, then she can follow me. Amen? So we're not gonna apologize for what the Bible says. At the same time, I don't think it's wise for a pastor or anyone else to be harsh or to make women feel like they're second-class citizens. That is not what the Bible teaches. Women are highly valued, and we know that they have been uh, women have been absolutely essential to the operation of the church. And much of the ministry that goes on in the local church and the mission field is done by women. So that is just a credit to the faithfulness of women. But nonetheless, there are still roles that God has laid out. And so this particular obey your leaders and submit to them, the word submit is a word that means to yield to authority and to admonition. Now, you are to submit to your leaders. If you're in a marriage, you submit to your husband. You don't submit to every man. But there's also a submission called for in government, like we're supposed to submit to government leaders. If you're in the military, you submit to your commander. So there's an order of things, and this is how God has laid things out. And if you have an argument... I guess you're going to have to have it with him. <laughs> now, obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's why you should, for they keep watch over your souls. That's about as significant a job description as I could ever think of. That in some sense, a pastor elder watches over the souls of the flock. Now, I'm telling you, just, you know, if, if you are a person that considers ministry, that should make you at least swallow a little bit and take a sober assessment of that job description. That is, that you watch over the souls of the flock. Now, what does that mean, that I watch over your soul? I'm not the one that saves your soul, nor do I keep you. But in some way, as a leader, and if you walk this out to the collective leadership of the church around the world, this is watchtower imagery. This is actually, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is actually from Ezekiel chapter 3, 33, and I think it's Isaiah 60, oh, somewhere in the 60s, but, but basically it's this, that whenever the word is translated in the Greek Old Testament, there's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is watchtower imagery. So here's what the, the guy on the watchtower did. He would he'd be watching over the city and he would make sure that no invaders were coming in. And he was culpable for their blood if he didn't sound the alarm if an army was gonna come to attack the city. But if he sounded the alarm and those people did not heed his warning, then it was on them. That's the uh, language from Ezekiel 33. If, if you're on the watchtower and you sound the alarm, the enemy's coming, the enemy's coming, and the people respond, 
everything's good. But if you don't do your job, and literally this means, this language for watch, keep watch, is to stay awake. So if he was sleeping on the job, as it were, if he wasn't doing his job, then he was responsible. Let me show you a parallel text to this in the book of Acts, chapter 20. Uh, Paul will use similar imagery. Let's flip over there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And Paul is addressing the elders at the, of the church at Ephesus, and he says these words. This is Acts 20, 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I've, I went about preaching the kingdom, Acts 20, 25. I want you to notice that Paul, in his New Testament preaching in all the different cities, was preaching the kingdom of God. We've been studying that on Sundays. Acts 20, 25. I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice, watching over, protecting to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, Acts twenty twenty nine, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you, each one with tears. Now, Paul is using watchtower imagery here when he says, in verse 26, I am innocent of the blood of all men. What he's saying is, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, or we might translate this the whole purpose of God. Implicit in that, if you turn back to Hebrews, is this reality. If a shepherd withholds the full counsel of God so that sheep become susceptible for his failure to teach the full counsel of God, I believe that that shepherd is going to answer to the ultimate shepherd. And that's why I swallow a little bit hard when I say these things to you. <laughs> Amen? Because the truth of the matter is, if I didn't speak to you the truth, and of course it's gonna take a while to get the full counsel of God behind, before a church congregation, but here's my point. If I bunted when I should have taken a full swing, if I withheld truth because it wasn't popular, uh, dot, 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 and then you become more susceptible to wolves because I didn't tell you the truth, then that's on me. I failed to do my watchtower job. So when we go verse by verse through the Bible, some of you may wonder, why is that living truth's approach? Well, because we're called to teach the full counsel of God, and I know that when I preach a Sunday, I know exactly what I'm preaching the next Sunday. It's the next chunk of scripture. I never have Saturday night jitters. Never. Unless we're gonna go to a psalm, but if, if, we, if we pause from our verse-by-verse -verse teaching, as you well know, if you've been here for a while, it's only because maybe there's a sense of a holy nudge to take a break and go to a psalm or somewhere else. But for the most part, this is what we do. Why? because we're getting the full counsel of God, and on top of that, we're not skipping difficult texts, whether they be about leadership, whether they be about 
sexuality, whether they be about roles of men and women, it's all gonna come. You're gonna get it all in the Bible, amen? You're gonna get the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're gonna go through the book of Judges and we're gonna see war and ugly stuff and chaos and everybody doing what was right in his own eyes. How applicable is that to today? Amen? Amen. But I will tell you that as a Bible teacher, there's some chapters that I look ahead and I'm like, I don't really want to teach that. <laughs> Honestly, in my flesh, I don't want to teach it because I know it's not going to necessarily be received well by everybody. So obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch. They have a job to do. They are to keep alert and watch over your souls. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul said, to Timothy, these words, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, 1 Timothy 4.16. So we're having a conversation outside, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get off this in a minute, but I, I just wanna tell you what I see in church culture. I see churches doing box series on at the movies. Churches doing series, it looks like all these churches have purchased the series from the same outfit. 20 minutes of a movie clip and a 10 minute commentary with a little light and fluffy, a couple of scriptures in there, and that's about it. And most of the sermon is a movie clip. Now I like movies as much as the next person. But when I come to church, I come for the word of God. I can watch a movie at home, amen? amen? So I don't want you to think that I'm trying to be mean because that's not what I'm doing. I'm concerned, actually. I'm concerned. Because here's what we see in the culture. We see oftentimes polls are done and a good majority of Americans still say what? I'm a Christian. And then we see behavior and we go, now, wait a minute. You know, it used to be a decade or, or so ago, it was something like 70 to 80% of Americans were saying they were Christians. And I'm like, well, where's the disconnect then? And it may well be that people are just checking boxes on medical forms or answering polls, and I get that. But it also may be that people in the church, quote unquote, are not very well taught. Like, for example, could you make a good argument right now for some of the things I've touched on? And I think many of you could. But you're not going to be able to make a good argument unless someone teaches you what the Bible says, right? Or you're doing a good job on your own. So notice these leaders keep watch, watchtower imagery, and they are those, middle of 17, who will give an account. So... Romans 14, if you're taking notes, Romans 14, um, I don't have the exact verse in front of me, but um, just, just for now, Romans 14, you can, you can find it on your own, says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every Christian is gonna give an account, and we all celebrate the fact that that's probably pointing to a Bema seat where it's dealing with rewards, our sin was paid for at the cross. We all know that. But the other verse I was thinking of is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we've done, whether good or bad. Here's my point. Be James 3.1 says, let not many of you be teachers for we will incur the stricter judgment. Here's, here's what James is getting at. James is not saying, don't anybody go into the ministry. No, it's a beautiful thing if you aspire to the ministry. 1 Timothy 3.1. If a man aspires to the office of the overseer, it's a beautiful thing he desires to do. 1 Timothy 3.1. But just know that if you teach others the word of God, you will give an account for your teaching. Now, as you just survey the landscape of the professing culture, there's pastors that you'd say, yeah, that person seems to be like really believes he's going to stand before God and give an account. And then there's other people that you watch and you're like, I'm not sure that that person really believes they're gonna give an account. Let me just give you one example. Benny Hinn, who has done all these healing crusades over time, and I know the gospel has gone forth from Benny's mouth more than once. But what Benny did a few years ago is he publicly repented for his word faith theology. So he said, I'm done with it. I'm finished with it. I'm not going to manipulate people for money anymore. I don't believe it anymore. And then a recent video has emerged where Benny is in a luxury automobile and he's using the same old tactic that he's used all along. And so here's the question. Did Benny repent? Well, if you have a ministry where all this money is flowing in and, you know, extravagant lifestyles are being lived and there's no accountability and then you hear the same old you know give to my ministry and it's always my ministry you give to my ministry and you're going to get this blessing and that's kind of what he was doing and this particular um podcast i was watching the 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 guy was just saying it's sad he was like brokenhearted over it because benny said he repented and then he's using the same old tactics and you say what's the same old tactics so your seed into my ministry, and here's what God's going to do for you. But they're largely empty promises, often twisting Scripture to his own destruction. I'm just being honest. And, and, I, and I'm bringing it up because here's where we are in the text. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're watchmen who are going to give an account to God. Now, this is for the congregant. Let them do this with joy... And not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Don't cause your leaders a ton of grief. <laughs> yeah. Hallelujah. Now, here's what I would say. My experience in the ministry is, yes, there's been some blips on the screen and certainly been some hard times. And, you know, if you look at uh, things that, you're called to do, in particular in the ministry, there's some tough things, right? You, you go, sometimes you deal with people at the lowest points of their life. And, but look, we have a lot of privilege too as pastors. And I, and I wanna say something to, to you guys as the flock, is that you do a tremendous job encouraging us, caring for us. And I wanna take a moment just to honor all the pastors here and our elders, and our deacons, and all of our leadership, because there's a tremendous godly group leading this fellowship. Amen. And amen, you can, you can clap for them. And I will tell you this, 
between our elders, pastors, and lay leaders and all of that, it's, it's an amazing group of people so incredibly dedicated to the kingdom of God. And they make uh, the work a joy. And sometimes there's some hard things. Yes, it's true. But I will tell you this. I think the more mature a congregation is, the job of the pastor is easier because here's what happens. You guys know your accountability first and foremost is to your shepherd. So if, I often tell people, look, if you want to have a good marriage, just have two people committed to God. And if they believe that they made the covenant before God and they're accountable to God, then that marriage is going to be healthy because they're ultimately knowing that they're answering to the Lord. Amen? So I think that's what happens is that when a group is well taught, then their conduct follows and they make the job of the leadership easier. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. But there's, uh, let me just read Hughes when he says, this call is not for slavish, blind obedience, but a respectful, submissive spirit. Uh, another writer says, this is not blanket obedience to some dictatorial leader. Uh, Jim Jones, when he got all those people to drink the Kool-Aid, well, we know what was going on, right? He was a manipulator, and some of those people were trying to get out of there, and they couldn't because they were, they were threatened with guns. But how did it get to that point? Well, Jim Jones convinced people that he had all authority and power. So here's the thing. Take verse 7 with 17 and know this, that if you're going to follow a leader, it's because he's teaching the word of God. He, you, you can imitate his faith and you follow him as you follow Christ, as he follows Christ. But this is not blanket submission to anybody who has a business card. That's not how this works. Just because you have a title doesn't mean you can throw your weight around. And Jesus confronted the apostles with that. And he said, look, the, the, the Gentile lords, they lorded over people, but that's not what my kingdom is about. He who would be greatest among you shall be what? Servant of all. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Paul said, it's been my honor, I'm paraphrasing, to, be, to basically be a drink offering on your behalf. So that's biblical leadership. That's biblical leadership in a marriage. That's biblical leadership in the church. It is not about throwing one's weight around. And if you do that, if you start barking orders and become a dictator and you get them to line up and whatever you're gonna do, that is not healthy, nor is that New Testament leadership. So, I think you can see the balance here. Yes, there's a call to the church, but you can see the significant responsibility to those who are leaders. And of course, the writer says, you know, if you give them grief, it's gonna be unprofitable for you. Let me just say this to balance out verse 17. Obviously, there's gonna be things in every church, every local church that could improve and could be better. But if there's a good, solid leadership in a local church, then we try to give grace on things that are not terribly important, you know. Uh, there's always going to be little things everywhere. But if you've got good leadership, rejoice in that. Try to encourage it. And you're going to see that this particular writer is going to give a, another command and that, or exhortation, and that is this. He's going to say, 
pray. That's verse 18. (laughs) Pray for us. For we are sure or we're convinced that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably. I use that in the title. The word honorably is kalos in Greek. It means to behave well, appropriately, beautifully, excellently, finely, morally, rightly. You could say it this way. Our aim is to always do things well and always do things right. We want to do all things that way, end of 18, so pray for us. Christian leadership is strengthened by encouragement and prayer. And uh, perhaps some of these folks were complaining. Maybe they were doing more complaining than praying. Spurgeon uh, delivered a sermon on May 27th, I think it was 1855, and he said these words. His concluding comments, my people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will you ever cease your supplications? Well, will ye then even cease to pray? I fear ye have not uttered so many prayers that morning as ye should have done. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. Spurgeon basically says to his congregation, I'm sensing less power, and my conclusion can only be that you're praying for me less. Wow. Now, if you know anything about Spurgeon, he was the prince of preachers, and he preached with a dynamic, spirit, you know, empowered uh, ministry, and thousands and thousands flocked to hear Spurgeon preach. But Spurgeon told his congregation, my sense is that you're not praying for me as much because I, I don't sense the power up here that I've sensed at other times. And I'll just tell you this, that anyone who preaches knows this very well. There's times when your cadence, your insights into the word of God, etc., can only be coming from an endowment from heaven. And when you don't have it, you know it. <laughs> and when you know it, you, you almost feel like when you're preaching, you're dying naked in front of a group of people. I stole that from Alistair Begg. But, but th- my point is this. It's got to be the power of God or it isn't gonna work. So some of the most important things that we do prior to a Wednesday night service, and I keep telling you guys and some of you are there, is we pray. Because if we, pray, if we don't pray, there's no power. And yes, God's word already has power, but I think you all know what I'm saying. If we desire power in our lives and churches, we must pray. How different, says R. Kent Hughes, the modern church would be if the majority of its people prayed for its pastors and lay leadership. There would be supernatural suspensions of business as usual worship, close quote. You ever sensed it before when, I I remember last year at our men's retreat on Saturday night, the Holy Spirit was just moving and there was just some cool stuff happening where God was just touching men left and right. And it's always so sweet when you experience that. And I'm not saying that if we just pray enough, it's automatically gonna happen. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we need to call upon the Lord. So will you commit yourself to pray for your pastors? Many of you 
pray for us regularly and we appreciate that. Do we pray for pastors nationally that have a huge platform? Uh, I can think of many right now who I might just assume they're okay. I mean, I hear them on the radio all the time. They have big ministries, but that doesn't mean anything. They're just men. They're just like you and me. They could fall on their face tomorrow. And some of them have. Have you been watching? I mean, we've had some major falls in the last five or 10 years, not to mention the other departures that have occurred in the Christian music world. Pray for them. Pray for me, says Chrysostom. Pray for us. Please pray. Because we desire to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and we know if we're going to do it, we're going to need your prayer. And I urge you, 19, all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you soon, the sooner. Now, you can see that the author is not with them, so he's urging continued prayer, not only that they might do things well, but to be restored back to them soon. This means that he believes that prayer could affect the outcome. We must bring into intercession the conviction that God can use our prayers to affect change when humanly speaking, says one author, change seems impossible. I know there's a theological debate on how much our prayers affect the ultimate plan of God, but let me just say, we've been called to pray, have we not? And this author says, I believe that God is going to use your prayers towards a restoration of our relationship. Traveling mercies, timing. Paul sometimes qualified it with Lord willing if this will happen, but he still says pray. Now the next two verses have become life verses for me. They're probably the most beautiful benediction you're gonna read in the Bible uh, when I share correspondence with people, I often end it with Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Here's what it says. Now, he asked them to pray for him. Now he prays for them. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom or to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. amen. So here's a New Testament prayer. I'm not sure that you and I have ever thought about this before, but this is a wonderful prayer to pray for those that you love in the Lord. Now, the God of peace. Now, some of the big themes of the book of Hebrews are captured in this benediction. You say, what's a benediction? It's like a closing prayer or blessing is what a benediction is. Now, the God of peace. God is the God of peace or shalom. His essence is peace. He's, he's never worried, never upset, never freaked out, never stressed out, never wondering what he's gonna do, never late, He's got none of that going on. He's ultimate serenity, if you will. He's the God of peace. He's got his plan. He's got all power, all knowledge, all grace, and he's called the God of peace. And that God of peace, what he is, he gives to us. The peace of God, which 
surpasses all comprehension in Christ Jesus will guard your heart and your mind. What he is, he gives. He is, Ephesians 2.14, our peace. Amen? He gives you shalom. In Jewish thought, it's well-being from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. It's to be well in God. You will keep him in shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you, Isaiah 26, 3, because he trusts in you. Now may that God, that God of peace, every time you approach him in prayer, he gives you what he is. He gives you peace because he's the God of peace. He's also the God, father of mercy and God of all comfort, etc. When you draw near to him, you get his peace, you get his love, you get his compassion, you get everything that he is, his mercies new every morning, but you gotta come, amen? It's not just automatic. And that God of peace who brought up from the dead, here is the resurrection, the, the, you could say the verification, ratification that Jesus Christ is the son of God by resurrection. Notice he God brought him up from the dead. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus in John 10, 14 and 15, you remember it. He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. So in this uh, agrarian culture and especially in the Old Testament, and if you go to the Middle East today, you can see shepherds and sheep. You can see the relationship. It's a beautiful relationship where the, the sheep actually do know their shepherd's voice and they can discern it from other voices. And they won't follow another shepherd, but they'll follow him. And he lays in the opening of the sheep pen to protect them. And it's this incredible image of what God does. He carries us. He, he heals us. He leads us to green pastures and quiet waters. He restores our soul. It's who he is. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And this shepherd, what did he do? He laid down his life and through the blood, and this has been a central theme in the book of Hebrews, the superiority of the new covenant to the old, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. This is who he is. This is our great shepherd. Some, remember in the Hebrew church, were being tempted to follow a different voice, to move away from that great shepherd. But why would you do that? Why would you leave the one who loved you? Why would you leave the one who died for you? Why would you leave the blood of the eternal covenant? He died once for all, for all time. Your sins are paid for in full. Where else are you gonna go for that? Nowhere else to go. Jesus is our peace, and he is the new covenant. His blood, his death, Bring us peace with God. And the prayer is that he would equip you. 21, katartizo is the common word for equipping. Two essential components of the word equip. It means to restore or mend and to prepare for use. It could speak of equipping, mending, divine enabling. The one he, whom he prays to he says, he can equip you. God will equip you and he will enable you. The word 
from one writer says, to repair things or people so that they can be useful. Another writer says, God is not only able to supply what is necessary, but also to repair what is broken. When we're equipped, the word is used when uh, James and John were on the boat with their dad mending their nets. It can mean to set a bone. You break a bone, a doctor sets it. They say oftentimes that bone is stronger than it was before. That's katartizo, equip. Here's the image in everyday life. Let's just say that we were on a hockey team together and you're the goalie. Years ago, uh, the goalie had very little equipment. And so he often was missing teeth like a lot of modern day hockey players. Like, you know, and, and it, it's a brutal thing. That puck comes flying at you. But now you see everything he's got on. He's got those big old pads and big old leg pads. And he's got the stick and he's got, it used to be the Jason mask. <laughs> Remember that? Kind of scary. Anyway, now he's got the full helmet and the whole thing and he's padded up. It'd be like a baseball catcher. All right, here we go. Back in the day, baseball players only wore their regular cap to the plate. Do you know that? They didn't have helmets until, I don't know what the year was, but people started getting hit in the head and they thought, you know, we should probably do something about this. <laughs> Can you imagine being a catcher? You see how fast those, those foul balls, you know, and they'll hit the mass sometimes. You're like, how did that catcher you know, shake that off in five seconds and he's back. Imagine if he had no helmet on. Oh, that'd be ugly. You ever seen a pitcher deliver a pitch and get hit in the head? Line drive coming 105 miles an hour right back at you. In life, proper equipment is pretty important. Motocross, you know, you're driving a, an auto uh, race. You know, you can think there's a lot of different areas where you need the right equipment. And this is the prayer, that God would equip you. Now we're talking about kingdom stuff, spiritual stuff, the armor of God, the endowment of heaven, the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would equip you. And in some cases, that means he's got to mend you before you can be ready to fight the good fight. May he equip you in every good thing, 21, to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, we might offer those good sacrifices we studied last time. We might offer a sacrifice of praise. We might do good and share. It's all done through Jesus Christ, to whom or to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what the writer has done here? He's just given us a, a way that we can pray. And maybe implied in that prayer is, this is how you could pray for me. <laughs> I asked you to pray for me. Now here's a prayer, but this is what I'm praying for you. And I think that this would be a wonderful thing for you and me to think about the next time I'm praying for a beloved brother or sister in Christ. Lord, would you equip them? Would you mend them where they need to be mended? Would you prepare them where they need to be prepared with the right equipment from heaven so that they can do what pleases you? Final few verses. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation He's basically saying, I know this has not been an easy letter for you to deal with and to hear, but please bear with it because I could have written more, <laughs> end of 22. I've written to you briefly, right? I think every pastor, I, I tell you, uh, and, and at Living Truth, it's kind of a running joke because the younger guys, have you noticed, they preach longer than I do. And some say that I set the precedent 
and I'm willing to take that blame if that's what needs to occur. But they can see the clock the same way I can, right? <laughs> but here's what happens. Sometimes when you're preparing a message, you're like, you know, am I going to have enough material? And then you're like, oh, I have so much material, I don't know what to do. And sometimes you, you only preach part of what you've actually prepared, but you trust that the Lord will ferret that all out. So he says, I've written to you very briefly, take notice, 23, that our brother Timothy has been released. So there we know that Timothy had been in prison and had been away from them, with whom, if he comes soon, sounds like the author, wherever he is, is close to Timothy's location. I shall see you. So if Timothy comes, I'm gonna come with him. It would be nice if we knew more about the specifics of the author, but we just don't have enough. But this is good news. Take notice, our brother Timothy has been released. What a blessing to hear that, right? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people were worried about Timothy and to know he got out of prison uh, was a, a wonderful word of encouragement. 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. And if you have a New English Bible, Greetings to you from our Italian friends. And I got to tell you that I thought I liked verses 20 and 21 until I found out that Italians were mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And many of you who know me know why I'm so excited because Italians always have to tell you they're Italian. Honk if you're Italian, you know. Whatever, whatever the license plates may say. And now you know on biblical authority that there's greetings from the Italians in the Bible right here, Hebrews 13, 24. So now my correspondence will read, greetings to you from our Italian friends. And I might send a little pizza dough, maybe a side of meatballs, I don't know. But I'm pretty excited about verse 24. Apparently, you're not, because I'm getting a little bit of mixed reaction. <laughs> My wife prepares the slides for uh, these sermons, and she does such a wonderful job. And she read through the text, and she was like, Italy's in the Bible? And I'm like, yeah, Italians. And then she was like, oh, yeah, Rome, right? Yeah. That's the backdrop of the New Testament. Rome's dominating Israel. Yeah, all that. Anyway. But you can see that relationships are obviously very important in the church. Greet all your leaders. Greet all the saints. What a wonderful um, family we enjoy in the Lord. Those from Italy greet you, whether they're in Italy or from Italy is debatable. And then, as many letters in the New Testament, and grace be with you all. We've learned about a throne of grace. We've learned about an altar of grace in the book of Hebrews. And grace is such a beautiful word. Some have said you can take the letters as God's riches at Christ's expense. But grace is a word which speaks of the benevolent goodness of God. Grace upon grace upon grace flows from him. Grace is all of God's benevolent goodness toward his people. And I'll tell you what, he keeps giving it to me. Amen? How about you? He pours out grace upon grace upon grace. Strengthening grace. He saved me by grace. He strengthens me by grace. Paul said, uh, he told Paul, 
Um, my grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in weakness. And he says, may that grace be with you all. Another benediction, and this will be the last. This is 2 Corinthians 13, 11 and 14. It reads this way. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and all God's people said. Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews. We've enjoyed our time together delving into its pearls and beauty, uh, trying to mine the truth within it, trying to make the right application and trying to understand, and I think it's clear what's there, that Jesus Christ is our sympathetic and superior high priest, ever living to pour grace, to intercede for his people. You know every need, Lord, in this room tonight, everyone who will interact with this message at some point, whether on the YouTube channel or by radio or wherever it goes, you know what they need. And my prayer is that you would pour out grace upon your people, grace upon grace, so that it would be so thick and so full that they can't even, they would just be an overwhelming flood, Lord, that you'd open up the, the windows of heaven and pour out saving grace for those who don't know you tonight stabilizing grace for those who are in a storm, strengthening grace for those who may feel weak. So many beautiful dimensions of grace, and we're just grateful that the letter ends as other New Testament letters do with this rich desire that the people of God would bask in the grace of God. And that grace is in a face. His name is Jesus but it's also a grace we can discover in one another through your power and your grace in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you be ministering to folks and they'd have a little bit of moment of reflection to hear from you and what you'd have them to do and how you'd have them to rest and, and even to respond in a way that pleases you. So we thank you as we close uh, this time on the book of Hebrews. It's been wonderful, and we, we praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.